All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of iForm Sports. Your hosts, Gavin Murray and Danny Rubin. It's another day. We're not together right now because, you know, semester ended, so we're both at home. I'm in Stone Harbor, New Jersey. Danny, you want to tell us where you're at? I'm in Long Island, New York. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. We uh, we have a whole different recording setup. We both got our own snowball mics from Yeti. Um, the blue snowballs, they're nice, so we're hoping the audio quality is nice and good, um, even though we are apart. Uh, this is still your favorite sports podcast. Yes, it is, and we have an extremely big day today. First of all, it's Gavin's birthday, so okay. everybody listen, wish him a happy birthday whenever you're listening to this. I don't care if you're listening to this in the year 2082. I want you to text Gavin and wish him a happy birthday. I'm going to get so many happy birthday messages after this, I swear. Oh, yes, bro. you will. That's how, also... That's- we have we have two brand new segments today that you're gonna see at some point later i feel like you guys need to be really excited for those and but the main things of this episode we're talking since we haven't been able to record for it's been a month yeah it's been a while so we have to do our whole recap of the draft we did our whole live draft reaction but we haven't actually given it the whole reaction and a little bit of time just to sit in our brains so we're gonna go over that today as well as we're gonna have to do a little bit of nba playoff talk because big things are happening it's the nba playoffs it's starting to heat up and a lot of the games have been really good so far i've enjoyed watching nba playoffs i also have a surprise that not even danny knows about that i'm gonna talk about during this episode so he's gonna be equally as surprised as all of our listeners and i know he's gonna love it you're gonna love this you're gonna love it. I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you right at the end of the episode too, so you can get all excited about it and shit. It's gonna be great. So to kick off this episode, we're gonna go over that draft recap that Danny was talking about. So we split it up into you know winners and losers, but we also want to talk about some of our the most interesting draft classes that we saw um, in this year's draft. So to kick things off. I did a lot of research on the Miami Dolphins, who was a team that I wanted to consider a winner in this draft. As you know, they moved up with Philadelphia uh, to the sixth pick in the offseason with their trade for Philadelphia moving back to 12, Eagles getting a first-round pick, their first-round pick next year, and a whole lot of other movement that happened along the way. And with that pick, they chose Jalen Waddell. And now we all know a lot about Jalen Waddell. He's more than just a receiver. He's a he- amazing return man too. He is in 2019. He led the NCA in punt yard return, uh, punt return yards. Excuse me, an average punt return yards per game. And in his career at Alabama, he had two touchdowns on those punt returns, and he also had a kick return against Auburn, if I remember correctly. Specialist. Yeah. One thing I want to say about him, if I may interject, my biggest thing that I love about this guy is that he fucking wants it. You see so many players that just play for the money, play just to be in the league. He was injured, and he came back to play in the national championship game, and there are people giving him shit for that and knocking him for it, as if like him wanting to be a part of a championship True. team is a bad thing. I don't know. That's just the type of thing that makes me love him as a player, and big things also there was the whole thing on draft night of him just kind of getting up and walking right past his family when they're all like hugs and high fives businessman you love to see it so he's one of he was one of the top four weapons in this draft and you know that's that's more young targets for Tua pair him along with Will Fuller Devontae Parker that's a really good young receiving core to grow with their young quarterback so I think Tua got a lot of help here plus 
you know, former college teammate. That goes to say something. They've got chemistry already, and they're going to build upon that, I think. A lot of that this year. Burrow and Chase. Burrow and Chase, Hertz too. and Devonta Smith. Yeah, I mean, it happened all over the place. So, you know, relationships count for something in the NFL, especially when you're building a team. So that's something that I like. I, I thought was interesting to see in this draft. Next pick that they had, they got my favorite, you know, one of my favorite prospects in the entire draft at 18, Jalen Phillips. I mentioned it before in our initial mock episode. I spent a ton of time doing research on Jalen Phillips um, because I originally was trying to decide whether or not this was before the Texans got Bud Dupree. So I was looking at pass rushers for them and Jalen Phillips was the guy that I decided upon for him. Fortunately, he ended up going a little bit higher than the Titans pick. So his stock rises a little bit. But he's probably, I think he has the most upside of the the biggest ceiling of any edge rusher in this year's draft. He was a top recruit in 2017, played for UCLA and spent two seasons there. But he had to retire medically in 2018 because he had so many concussions. And after he retired, he moved from the Pac-12 to the ACC where he went to Miami, had his breakout year, fourth in NCAA and tackles for loss. 10th in the NCAA with eight sacks this past season. And he averaged, uh, excuse me, he had 12.5 sacks and 23 and a half tackles for loss in only 20 college games. So he was getting more than a tackle for loss per game, his college career, which is kind of nuts. 6'6", 260, moves with speed, uh, really good at penetrating inside and outside with quick and powerful hand movement, flexible and can bend around. I know. I knew you were going to say something. I wrote that note (laughs) down. I wrote the note down. And I thought, you know, I know Danny's going to say something when I say that. So I was just going to, you know, take it. So that's why I tried to go quick there. Pause again. Oh, God, bro. (laughs) Whatever. Keep going. Keep going. He's flexible. He can bend around the outside of the tackle when he's coming off the edge. And Miami blitzed. At the third highest rate in the NFL last season. So pairing him with Emmanuel Ogba, who had a career high in sacks, QB pressures, and percentage of defensive snaps played, I think it's a great fit for Phillips. He doesn't have to be the number one guy, but you know, I think he will be. That's very good points here. I'm a big Jalen Phillips guy. I feel I feel like this is the prospect we might have even talked about the most throughout the whole course before the draft. Yeah, before the We've draft. We've done a lot of Jalen together. Phillips talk. You and me together, we spent a lot of time talking about it. Not even yeah. on the air, but you know, we spent a lot of time talking about it just between the two of us really casually, yeah. which was fun. Next, early in the fourth round, uh, early in the second round, top uh, fourth pick in the second round, they took Javon Holland who was the first safety off the board in the draft, which was, you know, kind of cool. Um, he set out in 2020 due to the co- due to COVID, um, which ended up hurting his draft stock. But he was an incredible player for Oregon. I remember early draft, you know, analysis by, like, YouTubers that I watched in my free time. He was one of the most notable safeties in the draft. So... You know, I thought he, I so I went back and I watched and looked at his stats, and he's extremely versatile, which is really perfect for Miami. They run a single high safety dominant style of defense, and he spent 64% of his coverage snaps in Oregon out the slot. So he can play high safety and he can cover slot. So he can do multiple things. And he also hits hard. He had five interceptions his freshman season, 2019. He led the Pac-12 in interceptions. He's a playmaker. 
And that's going to be exciting for Brian Flores and Josh Boyer uh, to mold for Miami. Yeah, the biggest thing about Miami draft to me that makes me love them more than any other team is that I feel like all their players, not only are they great selections, but they're all in positions to succeed. Like Holland's joining a secondary that's already one of the better ones in the NFL. There's a lot of star power there with like Xavier Howard. You see Waddle stepping into that offense where, like, most of the time, a young playmaker, they'll go into an offense that is not very good. Like, example of that, Devonta Smith, you know, he's going to some garbage team. We don't need to go in-depth there, though. And even, like, the next guy we're going to get into, Liam Eikenberg, that O-line, there's a lot of, I don't know, I feel like he just slots in super well, and he's just ready to go from day one. Yeah, there's a lot of talent on the Miami O-line. Really young, too, because they took two tackles in last year's draft. Robert Hunt and Jackson. I forget his Austin first. Jackson. Austin Jackson. So there's a lot of, you know, young potential there to also grow. It's a young team. Yeah. And Liam Eichenberg fits well into that. He was a consensus All-American in 2020. He went to O-Line U. Without ton, a doubt. Without a doubt, O-Line U. ton of guys that come out of there. Zach Martin, Quentin Nelson, Ronnie Stanley, Mike McGlinchey. That's just to name a few. And, you know, Leon Eichenberg can be another one of those guys, depending on how his career goes. He could be another name in a very long list. He's not the fastest tackle, but he only allowed pressure on 1.1% of his pass-blocking snaps since 2019. He's technically sound and a really tough run blocker. He's Originally, they thought that his arms were too short to play tackle at the next level, but the thought is he's going to play right tackle for Miami and Robert Hunt's going to move inside to guard, which is probably a good which is a good move for them. Robert Hunt wasn't the best tackle last year and he profiles more as a guard. So now they've got two guys that are really flexible and can go at either position. So they can see which one, you know, is a better tackle and the other one can kind of move inside and take on another role. So you're right, it's another position to succeed. And that doesn't happen a lot for young guys coming into the draft so high in rounds. Like this is the 10th pick in the second round. That's usually a team that wasn't so successful. But because of how Miami has finessed the draft board, like Laramie Tunsil turning into three or four first round picks for them is just more evidence that they're really good at acquiring draft capital. So that's part of the reason why a lot of these young guys are coming into really good situations. The last prospect that I want to talk about for Miami is tight end out of BC, uh, Hunter Long. He was rated the he was ranked the second best tight end by ESPN in this draft class, which is you know could be a stretch. You can make an argument for Pat Fryermuth. Yeah, Pat Fryermuth from Penn State. Maybe Brevin but... Jordan too. Yeah, I don't I don't think Brevin Jordan exactly. Those two. But... Those two are. You know, I think all three of them are pretty should be pretty considered equally at this point in the draft process. It was really one a it was really one and the field at the tight end position in this draft with Kyle Pitts. He had fifty seven receptions, which was sixth in the ACC, and eighteen point two yards per reception, which was fifth in the ACC this season. He's got speed and can be a seam threat. And he's also really good at scramble drills. So when the pocket breaks down, he's really good at scrambling outside to, you know, get separation for his quarterback, which is something that had to happen a lot at BC because BC has a pretty weak offensive line. Dolphins already have Gesicki, but Gesicki could decide to leave in free agency next season since his contract is up. But under Gesicki, he can develop, learn some new tools, and, you know, he doesn't have to come in right away, which is kind of nice. So... 
overall, I thought Miami, what Miami did in this draft process was they found guys that were at impact positions for them because honestly, Miami's at that point where they're very close to a playoff team and they're ready to take the next step into the playoffs next season. And they got playmakers and guys at positions that are going to make an immediate impact for them, which is something yeah i fully agree with that because if you look at their top four picks all of them are at extremely high leverage positions receiver edge rusher safety and offensive those, are, those are four of the most important positions in football yes without a doubt no questions not only that they got good players and they already have the pieces around them for them all to be able to succeed immediately so this is our number one biggest winner in the draft agreed and i feel like i can say that with confidence i i agree i think that they really nailed it um and i'm really excited to see what these guys do at the next level yeah so the next one uh you want to take it danny yeah following this i'm going to jump into another team that we consider to be a winner this being the cleveland browns there's a few picks in that draft that i really want to just jump into and highlight their first pick the 26th overall they took greg newsom the second who is a corner from northwestern Personally, I didn't even expect him to fall to them. I had him slotted, I believe, at 23 to the Jets before they traded that pick. And he yeah, ended he up just sl- – he slid down a few spots later than I expected just to go right to Cleveland. He's – I think I had him as cornerback number four, but this is a very loaded cornerback class, so he could have been the best guy in a different year. He's really good, and he's going to fit beautifully across from Denzel Ward. This is another situation similarly to Miami where the pieces are already in place and you're just slotting in the talented guy in a place where he can succeed. So I really think Greg Newsom, there's a high chance he could end up being one of the best corners from this class. Cleveland, Just because of the position that he's been put in. Cleveland is so close. I, I've, so, I've always thought, I think they could be there. I think they could be there. I think Cleveland has always been really, yeah. really close. And, you know, once again, they got guys at impact positions. They only, when we looked to do our mock, we only had like one or two holes on Cleveland's entire team, which is something that they filled both positions that we had them. They filled in the first two rounds, um, which yep. is, which was- and not, not to mention, they also, they signed Clowney. Yeah. And Clowney too. So that, so that was a big hole that they fixed. And then, so their next pick, something I want to talk about the biggest fall of the draft without a doubt, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. We thought he was going to go mid first round latest. And then he ended up falling all the way deep into the second round. They took him at like 52nd overall. Yeah, 52nd. Linebacker out of Notre Dame. Incredibly versatile. And for me, the biggest thing about this pick that I have not seen one person mention is he steps in perfectly to stop exactly what they need him to stop. That being Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson is and will be their biggest rival for the next few years as this up-and-coming Cleveland team. You saw it in the game where Lamar had to go take that shit and then came back and won the game. Yeah. That was that was a brutal loss for Cleveland. They played extremely well that game. If they're able to consistently stop Lamar Jackson, the div- who's stopping them in that division? Pittsburgh's on their way downhill. I don't think Joe Burrow and Cincinnati are going to be up there anytime soon. It really just looks like... Cleveland versus Lamar Jackson to me. I agree. And Owusu Koromoa as a fast, versatile linebacker, he is the perfect player and the perfect fit to be able to do that for them. So not only is their defense getting really, really scary, but they are getting exactly what they need to stop exactly who they need to stop. 
Yeah, Jeremiah Usukormo's lateral quickness was something that really stood out to me during the draft process. And you're right, Lamar Jackson is, is always going to be their biggest threat because I don't think Joe Burrow is ready to take that next step yet. I don't think the team as a whole in Cincinnati is ready for it. So at least for the next three years, I think Cleveland did the best thing that they could was pick up a, a hard hitter like JOK. And he's going to be really good at stopping Lamar Jackson because he's going to sit there in the middle of the defense and play that QB spy role. So when Lamar, you know, peels out of the pocket, there's JOK. And honestly, the only reason why I think he fell this far was because of a lack of creativity among NFL teams. They couldn't figure out a way to use JOK right. They couldn't, they couldn't fathom it which to you know use his versatility to its greatest potential and for the spot that they got him in the second round and for exactly the role that he needs to fill JOK is going to step in day one and be an impact maker for that team yeah no question there's one more thing I feel like we have to mention with JOK is one of the reasons I heard came out from specific teams they didn't pick him because in the draft process, he had a hard issue apparently come up late in the process that could discern teams. But apparently, it's not to be that big of a deal. You know, and not even much has been heard about it. It was just like a precautionary measure for teams, which I don't know why you would skip over JOK just for that. But Didn't stop him in college, that's for sure. Exactly. We'll, we'll see how that unfolds in the future. Agreed. And the la- after this, there's two more guys I just wanted to go over really quickly on the offensive side of the ball. The third-round pick was Anthony Schwartz. I didn't love him as a receiver prospect, but I feel like he'll be a really good depth piece for their receiving core that just always seems to be injured. They have Odell there. They have Landry. They have Rashard Higgins, Donovan Peoples-Jones. Like, they've had depth, and they have needed depth. So drafting a receiver like him, I feel like it was just a smart decision just based off of the injury-prone receivers they have. Couldn't agree more. And the final guy... This was one of my sleepers, Demetric Felton, running back receiver out of UCLA. I'd spoken about him as somewhat of a Swiss Army knife type of guy. And I feel like that's exactly who you want to draft at the end of the sixth round. They got him the 27th pick of the sixth round, so tail end of the draft. So this is a spot where you can afford to take a risk on someone. I feel like this is the ideal guy to take a risk on because he's extremely fast. And his ceiling is way higher than what you would see for most guys picked at that point in the draft. Day three is when you're supposed to take risks on guys. Guys that you feel like could have high impact that are great value for the spot that you can get them. And, you know, guys that are going to be worth the risk in your eyes. And I completely agree. Demetric Felton is one of those guys that I was hoping got picked up by a team that would know how to utilize him well. And he's going to be a really great third weapon because they've got Nick Chubb and... Kareem Punt, and I think that Demetri Felton's only going to help. Yep. All right, so you wanted to jump into your next team? Yeah, I want to jump into my last winner for the draft. There were a couple guys out of this team that I really wanted to talk about, um, and that's Minnesota. I think Minnesota did some really great navigation of the draft board um, with the Jets. They moved back from – they were originally slotted at 14, and they moved back to 23 with the Jets. And they picked up 66, which they ended up spending on Kellen Mond, who I'm going to talk to, talk about later, and 86, who they used on picking one of their biggest needs, which was interior offensive lineman Wyatt Davis. So not only did they get the guy that they were eyeing at 14, 
they got him at 23, which is always something that you love to see for an NFL team. Um, they got the guy that they wanted and acquired two additional players out of that. So I just want to get into Darisol real quick. He was a top three tackle prospect in this draft. He's extremely athletic. He has insane lateral quickness um, for getting into position against outside pass rushers, but also protects the inside really well. And one of the things that wasn't talked about enough, which is going to be very important for Minnesota since they're also such a run-heavy team, is that he elevates to the second level extremely well. He continues to block on rushing plays and does not dis- knows when to disengage contact for when the runner gets past him, but he also knows how to get out in front, which is very important for a team that runs as much as they do with Dalvin Cook. He's arguably a top three running back in the league. So getting him protect, getting him a guy that can, you know, elevate to the second level is going to be huge for their run game. I agree with everything you said, except for the Dalvin Cook, arguably top three. I feel like that's a stretch. You don't think he's top I think three? you could say like, I think you could say like top six. Interesting. Over him, I, I'm taking just off the top of my head, Derek Henry, Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, Nick Chubb. You're putting Nick Chubb Those above guys, Dalvin Cook? Definitely. Yes. Yes. I, I don't know about that. Nick Chubb is. I don't know about that. Nick Chubb, and then you could make the argument even for Kamara, and that there's got to be. I think I'm forgetting another guy in that top tier of running backs. Too. Miles Sanders. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um. So the next guy that I wanted, <laughs> uh, the next guy I wanted to get into was Kellen Mond. Um. And I think Minnesota is a really great landing spot for him. He's a developmental quarterback prospect, and Kirk Cousins has two years left on his contract now. Kirk Cousins is one of the guys that I feel like isn't talked about enough in the NFL as, you know, a decent quarterback. But I think he's the definition of doing the bare minimum to be considered just above average. He's not going to... I fully agree. He is, he is so serviceable. He's, he's serviceable, <laughs> but he's not great. He's hit his ceiling. I think at 30, exactly. he's going to be 33 next season, and this is his ceiling. He's a 25-21-1 starter in three seasons for Minnesota, and he has one playoff win in three seasons to show for it. I, I just don't believe that he's the guy to take them to the next level, and I don't think Minnesota is necessarily ready for that at this point. I think that, you know, in 2017, when they had that really great defense, I think that's that was the peak of their defense. So I think that they've they have to do some work to get younger on the defensive side of the ball and continue to bring in draft prospects to develop underneath these guys. But I think Minnesota's window is probably going to open up within the next one to two seasons. And I think setting Mon for those two seasons to learn from Kirk Cousins, especially learning how to throw the deep ball, is something that's going to be really impactful for him. The biggest knock on Kellamon the entire draft process was that his deep balls are often flat or overthrown. And Kirk Cousins is one of the best deep ball throwers in the NFL, and it's not talked about. He had the second most yards per pass attempt and the second most yards per completion this past season. He throws the deep ball well, and he always has. And Mond taking two years to learn to watch Kurt uh, throw these deep balls is going to help him develop throwing his own. He's a pocket passer. He trusts the pocket. He's 
and he has experience too. Since 1956, Kellen Mond has played the most snaps at the quarterback position in the SEC. That's crazy. It's true. Wow. He has he has experience against challenging and pro-ready def- SEC defensive prospects, and he works through his progressions well. So Minnesota is a great landing spot for him because, like I said, he's going to learn from Kirk Cousins. He's going to develop. And then in two years, I can see Kellen Mond stepping in and being – you know, a high ceiling guy to help Minnesota elevate to the next level. One of our Dan, one of Danny's uh, sleeper prospects from our pre-draft special, Chaz Surratt, also went here. Uh, the converted quarterback to linebacker, he fills one of their holes on the defensive side of the ball because they lost their starting inside linebacker Eric Wilson to Philadelphia this past off season. So I think he can sit a year. And learn behind Nick uh, Vigil, um, who they brought in from the Chargers. Chargers, and, yeah, yeah, Chargers. Chargers this past off season. He's got he's below average size and weight, but he makes up with that in athleticism and grit. He's a day one special teams guy, and he'll be a solid you know linebacker. And they got him mid third round, yeah, which is you know a good spot to take him. The best way I could describe Chester at is he's an athlete. Absolutely. He would, you could slot him in at a bunch of different positions and he could succeed. But linebacker seems to be the one that fits his body type best. And again, just everything comes from that lack of experience at the position. So once he sits behind players, once he sees more, once he plays more, I think he'll be a solid starter in the league. Yeah, he can be a rotational piece this year too. So he can get those snaps while also, you know, learning, which is something that's exactly. going to be really awesome. Um, The last guys that I really want to talk about out of this you know loaded draft class for Minnesota is two Pittsburgh defensive linemen uh Jalen Twyman who they took in the sixth round I already talked about Jalen Twyman he was one of my underrated draft prospects in our pre-draft special he's been working out with Aaron Donald during the draft process he's got a great swim move and uh, two hand swipe um the swim is his go-to move he's got blitz versatility he can line up inside and swing outside for blitzes and he's he's a primary pass rusher which is something that's really good with great play recognition and he's not gonna have to be a starter his first year because they've got two guys already to fill the that role but he can come in rotationally which is i think gonna be in you know an impactful position for him to come into so that he is ready to step into a bigger role in a season two seasons something like that and the last guy, third, it was the third round, the 27th pick in the third round, which was the draft pick they got from the Baltimore Ravens for Yannick Ngakwe. And with that pick, they acquired a primary pass rusher, uh, Patrick Jones II. He, 99% of his snaps at Pitt came as pass rush. Um, he was rushing the passer on or, you know, crashing the pocket on 99% of plays. He had five coverage plays this entire time. So he had, he fills the need that Yannick Ngakwe has left now moving on to Baltimore and he's, he can develop and, you know, honestly replace Yannick Ngakwe in the long term. So overall, I think this team, it's tough because there's a lot of guys in the middle that they also took that are return specialists developmental defensive end prospects, um, depth at receiver. With so many picks that they had, they could do a lot of things. And I feel like they filled a lot of holes really well. 
I think Minnesota is shooting for this one year, two year, you know, step to the next level to return to a playoff team. And they're doing it while already having pieces in place, which is always something that I like to see. So I was really proud with what Minnesota did this draft, this draft, you know, process. And I can't wait to see how some of these guys turn out. All right. So moving on from that, I have the next team that I want to talk about. I don't consider them to necessarily be a winner, nor do I really consider them to be a loser. And the main reason for that is it all depends on one player. That team is the New York Jets, and the player is the second overall pick of the draft, Zach Wilson. Now, I think Zach Wilson has an immense amount of talent and an immense amount of potential. However, I'm not sold on him. There are some things that I do not think he's ready to do at the NFL level yet, and I hope that he is not starting week one. I think he will be, and if he is, he could be in for a bit of a rude awakening there. Because the main thing that concerns me with him is the lack of competition he had at school. Zach Wilson was not beating good teams in college. The reason Zach Wilson flew up so many draft boards was because he was making really insane throws and making cool plays. However, that didn't necessarily translate to winning. The Jets are hoping they can harness his potential and turn it into a bit of consistency. And I think the Jets did exactly what they needed to do to do that. Starting with, they traded up in the first round, as Gavin mentioned in that trade with the Vikings. They got the 14th pick and used it to take Elijah Vera Tucker, the interior offensive lineman out of USC. First of all, I think the decision to trade up in itself was a great one because you always need to protect a young quarterback. And their offensive line was subpar last year. They got Elijah Vera Tucker, who specifically last year, their biggest problem was the interior offensive line because they had Mackay Becton, the rookie they had last year, who was nearly an elite offensive lineman so they're hoping the two of these guys can grow together into a very good offensive line and their next pick the second pick of the second round they took Elijah Moore wide receiver out of Ole Miss now Ole Miss is quietly becoming wide receiver you obviously they're not there yet because there's LSU and there's Alabama but Ole Miss for a school that hasn't had much college football success produces elite wide receivers in the past couple years, they've produced DK Metcalf and AJ Brown alone. And Elijah Moore went earlier in this draft than DK Metcalf went in his. Given DK Metcalf fell a lot, yeah. But no, there seems to be way too many people sleeping on Elijah Moore. Elijah Moore is going to come in there and be their best receiver or their second best receiver. And I think he can do that immediately. So I'm extremely happy with what the Jets did to give Zach Wilson everything he needs to succeed. Because... I've spoken about this so many times where if teams don't give their quarterback what they need, they're always wondering, well, maybe he's still that guy. Now, once these Jets pieces develop, you'll know for sure if he's that guy. Another thing that's very important to mention in this draft is the Jets took two guys both named Michael Carter. And that's hilarious. Kind of funny. Kind of funny. I Power think it's funny. move, honestly. Put them, put them on the field at the same time. The coach and the opposing team will be like, yo, somebody block Michael Carter. Which one? Exactly. Dude gets confused. He ends up blocking either of them. And Michael Carter comes in for the easy tackle. Which one? And guess what? The other Michael Carter makes the tackle too. Who knows? Who knows? I love it. Yep. So I saw a really interesting article. And to start off the Miami Dolphins rebuild, what they did was they fired Adam Gase. And they brought in a high-energy defensive coach that was culture-oriented. Now, the Jets did literally the exact same thing. 
they fired Adam Gase and they brought in a high energy team oriented defensive coach. I really, I, I really like Robert Sala. He was my favorite coaching prospect in the entire process this season. And I think he's going to do great things. I really do. I like him too. So I think that the Jets are kind of following this blueprint that Miami had. They're starting to acquire draft capital for quarterbacks, um, which they did with uh, trading Sam Darnold. You're right. They're taking a risk on Zach Wilson. We'll have to see if he pans out or not. Because honestly, I'm not overly sold yet either. But I did watch two hours of Zach Wilson tape when we were doing our initial draft process, uh, our, our initial episode for our mock draft, because I was trying to decide whether or not I liked him more than Justin Fields. Um, I ended up deciding that I did like him more than Justin Fields, solely based off of ceiling. He's a high ceiling guy, and it's a risk. Zach Wilson is a risk, but if you're not willing to take risks in the NFL, then you're not going to be a successful franchise. So I'm not going to say that the Jets, you know, had a great draft, but I'm also not going to say they had a bad draft, kind of just like you, because it all depends on Zach Wilson. He could be a bum. He could be a bozo, and who knows, because his best competition he played was Coastal Carolina, I think. Who knows? But we've seen guys come into the league that haven't faced, you know, amazing competition and, you know, been serviceable or been great quarterbacks, so... We'll see. We'll see how Zach Wilson. Did you pans see that out. one meme from draft night where it was just a picture of Zach Wilson in his suit and a picture of Mac Jones in his suit, and it just said like, uh, "Mac Jones looks like the president of the frat that Zach Wilson is trying to rush." Yeah, bro, that was so funny. <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> Zach Wilson just looks like a Zach young Wilson kid. looks like a Ken doll. Honestly, he looks like a Ken doll. I love that. He really and- does. At iForm Sports request, he said we're not going to make a comment about his mother. Regardless, now I want to move on to my first loser of the draft. Now, when I say loser, I think it's really hard to be a loser in the NFL draft, right? Because you're getting young. Yet the Eagles do it every year. You're getting young prospects, and <laughs> you're getting you know young guys that have talent, regardless of position, and they could be an impact-level guy to their team. So when I call a team a loser, I'm calling them a loser not because of the players that they're drafting, but because of the decisions they make, right? So the first loser that I have is the Houston Texans, and they didn't have a first-round pick. They didn't have a second-round pick. And with their first pick in the entire draft, they went out and chose a quarterback. Now, it was Davis Mills out of Stanford, who Danny and I both liked. I love him. So this isn't about him as a prospect. It's not about him as a prospect. I think he's a smart young quarterback. But Houston deciding to choose a quarterback was something that was really interesting to me. Because I conducted a basic study on NFL defenses. And Houston was overall the third worst defense only ahead of Detroit and Jacksonville, who both improved their defense during the draft. Detroit took Levi, and I'm not going to go for his last name because I'm going to butcher it. The defense, I love him. The defensive tackle out of Washington, who, yeah, Danny loved him, and he pointed out to me during early in the draft process, and he was potentially the best defensive tackle prospect in the entire draft. And Aline McNeil, a defensive tackle out of NC State, who's a big body nose tackle. What... Detroit is doing in this draft, which is something that I almost made them a winner for because I love it. And I think it's the smartest decision you can make. They're building a foundation for their defense in the trenches. 
they're defining the the Detroit Lions are defining themselves as a team that's going to be built through the trenches. They took Panay Sewell, and then they took uh, Levi, oh, last name I'm not going to butcher, um, and Aline McNeil. Those were their first three picks. So they prioritized the trenches. And that's not something I can complain with because I think that's how you, sh- you should build a team. Um, and this- not to mention, head coach Dan Campbell is going to make sure all these guys in the trenches are biting as many kneecaps as they can. God, I love Dan Campbell. He's mean, bro. And all of these guys that he got in this first three rounds are all mean defensive, uh, mean big body players. And I think that's really cool. I think that they chose high character guys that want to get out there and work. And there is no complaints with that. And for Jacksonville, the worst defense, no, the second worst defense, I'm sorry, Detroit was worse. But Jacksonville got their second corner to pair with CJ Henderson at the, with the first pick in the second round, Tyson Campbell. And they picked Danny's favorite safety prospect, Andre Sisco, who is one of our underrated draft yes, prospects. But Houston didn't choose a defensive player until the 26th pick in the fifth round. They waited, they chose a quarterback, and then a receiver, and then a tight end. Those were their first three picks. So honestly, I have concerns with that. This was something that I wanted to talk about with Danny on the pod, so I waited to tell him about this. But I really think that building a team can really be described as building an arch. First, you establish your foundation, and which is, you know, offensive line and defensive line. And then you get solid playmaking, supporting cast, running back, receiver, tight end on the offensive side of the ball, a strong secondary depth positions are really important here too for injuries. And then finally, you want to get your keystone guy. You want to get your quarterback. He's the guy that's going to put everything together because quarterbacks come with such a high price tag in the NFL because building a team around a quarterback on a rookie contract is going to be the easiest way to win a Super Bowl because you don't have to pay him that much money and you can pay your skill position guys, you can pay your depth guys, you can get all sorts of guys in there. And then, you know, once you get that keystone, you start filling in the gaps with the like the depth skill position guys, excuse me, and more depth around your team. And I think that is a really successful blueprint that teams use to make really great teams like excuse me let me rephrase that i think that blueprint is the successful path to building a super bowl contender currently the detroit is in the first stages of doing that they fired they got a new coach in they got a new front office manager and brett holmes who i love and then they went out and prioritized the trenches that's the foundation they're building their foundation Next, they'll start getting skill position guys, and then eventually they will replace Jared Goff, who's just a bridge quarterback to them, with a young, talented quarterback prospect, and then fill in the gaps around him. I see Detroit going on an upward path, and Houston did the exact opposite of that. They chose a quarterback, drafting Davis Mills, which is a pretty clear indication to me that Deshaun Watson is never playing again in a Texans uniform, nor should he if the allegations against him are remotely true he shouldn't be in the nfl if they are but i wonder if they could have gotten more value from drafting on the defensive side of the ball since they're so far away from being a contender they were tied for the worst defending team defending the run they were tied for the worst team defending the pass they were bottom 10 in preventing other teams from scoring and they were bottom five 
and stopping teams from converting on them on third and fourth down. That's bad. And I think the Texans would have been better served establishing a young defensive line and getting younger at the pass rusher position and rocked with Tyrod Taylor at quarterback. Yeah. I... I get what you're saying, and I definitely agree with you throughout the whole process of building a team, but I think one thing that is kind of you need to mention in this situation is that their while their first pick was a quarterback, it was a it was the 95th pick of the draft, correct? Or was it later? I can't do math. 99th. It was the third pick. I'm not sure. Wait, no. I'm so dumb. It's not 99. It's 65. 67. 67. Final answer. Okay, so the 67th pick of the draft is their quarterback. That means they did not have a first rounder and they did not have a second rounder. So if they had made all of these decisions in earlier rounds, I would fully be on board with you. However, they full they need a bridge quarterback right now because if Deshaun Watson is not there, who's playing quarterback? Tyrod Taylor. I don't know. Tyrod would... Taylor. Tyrod Taylor was supposed to be the starter for the he Chargers was. last season until Tyrod Taylor is he is a solid quarterback. However, in their situation, I would rather have a young guy in that spot just so I could gauge the talent. Because if Davis Mills ends up being a very good quarterback, which I think for a third rounder, he is a very good shot to do so. And he will without a doubt get playing time this season. If he ends up being good, sure. then you have your quarterback who's not only on a rookie deal, but on a third round rookie deal. So he's getting paid significantly less than a Trevor Lawrence or a Zach Wilson. So while this is a gamble, I think that the risk isn't too big because what are you, what are you necessarily losing out on here? Who's the guy that you would have picked over Davis Mills? I don't necessarily want to speak for the other picks, but the Davis Mills pick, the first pick they made alone, I don't personally have an issue with it. Well, if we're talking about guys after the third pick in the third round, just, you know, off the top of my head, third round pick, 27th overall, Patrick Jones would have made a lot of sense. Primary pass rusher for a team that just lost J.J. Watt, maybe? That would have been a good pick. Any any guy that is picked after um, the third pick in the third round is going to have, Davis Mills is going to have to have more value in Apple format. For on the defensive side of the ball, at least to make sense. And I think he will. I'm not. I'm not sure he will. I'm not sold that he will because Tyrod Taylor is there. I have a feeling that they're going to go with Tyrod Taylor. It's an open quarterback. It's an open quarterback battle there. Taylor is going to start the season without a doubt. But Davis Mills will 100% get playing time at some point, and I would be shocked if he doesn't. Just to me, the thing we'll here is, I like the Davis Mills pick just because of how much I like Davis Mills. I do not like their direction, and I do not want anybody in the world that take away from this me saying the Houston Texans are going to be good. Because the Houston Texans, unless Davis Mill is God himself, the Houston Texans will not be good for a long, long time. They are bad. I'm gonna be complete- they had issues on the very top of the organization, and then their superstar player, they're having major legal issues with him right now. This team is on a downward spiral. They're going to be the worst team in the league this year, and I don't see it getting better. Even with their superstar player, even with their superstar player, Deshaun Watson, they still went 4-12, and and they still have the third overall pick. Davis Mills is literally going to have to be God, and he's going to have to be better than Deshaun Watson this next season for him to make an immediate impact for their improvement. 
It's true. And Davis Mills is not going to be that. He's not going to be a top five, top 10 quarterback next season. I just, I believe that it would have been more pertinent to them and they could have made a better decision. Don't get me wrong. I do love Davis Mills. I love him as a prospect. I love him as a person. I love him as an academic, but I just don't think Houston taking a quarterback was the right choice. And certainly following that up with receiver wasn't probably a great choice either. And I do like Brevin Jordan. Brevin Jordan was my favorite pick that they made in the entire draft at the third pick in the fifth round. I think he has good ability. He's got ability to stretch the field and make tough catches that are contested, but he needs to develop as a blocker to make an impact at the NFL level. And I just think overall, as the Texans, they did not make their team better by drafting people at impactful positions. And with so few draft picks, that hurts them. Yeah. I think Houston's the worst team in the NFL next season. Without a doubt. I really do. I agree. At some point, we're going to have to do, at some point, we're going to have to do an NFL, like, standings prediction, whether it be an episode or you and I just make them and like, I put it on a graphic and we get it out on social media, that'll be something we have to do. And I think we'll both have Houston at the bottom of the league. I absolutely have However, one, one more comment I want to make on them taking receiver there, it's just a Will Fuller replacement. Like, I'm not looking deeper than that. They lost Will Fuller, they drafted a receiver. Yeah. Like, they're dumb. We don't need to spend too much time talking about how stupid they are. <laughs> All right, then yep. since we're done talking so about then, how stupid Houston is. Why don't we move on to our next team, Danny? Yep, we have the Raiders. Now, everybody hates the Raiders draft. They're saying it's terrible. They're saying it's bad because the Oakland Raiders, not Oakland, I'm sorry. The Las Vegas Raiders did the thing that they always do where in the first round, they take their first guy available, who is always nobody else's first guy available. Bama or Clemson. They, they march to the beat of their own drum, and that hasn't served them well in the past. It has, However, I will give them the benefit of the doubt and say that I don't hate this draft. I'll do it. I'll be the one guy who sticks up for them and says, I don't hate this. They took Alex Leatherwood round one, and this guy is absolutely going to define their draft. And I might even go further to say he could define their organization because this this feels like the climax of what the Raiders have been doing with their first round draft picks taking a guy that nobody else would even consider taking and they did this and if if Alex Leatherwood pans out to be a good player which he very well could and so many people are writing him off he could be a very very good player and if he is the Raiders will look fantastic However, I'm not even going to look into that pick too far in depth because I want to speak about the rest of their draft. Rounds two through four, they absolutely killed. They had Trayvon Morig. They took him the 11th pick of the second round. That is the consensus number one safety in the draft. Personally, I had Andre Sisko over him just because I loved his ceiling. But Morig was close behind for me. And 90% of people had this guy as their safety number one. And they got him middle of round two. Next round, they had two picks. They had the 16th and 17th picks of this round. They took Malcolm Koontz, an edge rusher from Buffalo, and Divine Diablo from Virginia Tech, who I consider to be a bit of a safety linebacker hybrid, who's very physical. He deals with tight ends well. He can rush the passer. He can play coverage. And Malcolm Koontz is a great piece for that struggling defense they've had the past few years. This has been an extremely yeah, deep time. edge rushing class, and they I feel like he was overlooked a lot. And this is a guy that I I spoke to you about him in the pre-draft process. The last time Buffalo, uh, the Raiders took 
an edge rusher out of Buffalo and ended up working out pretty well. It did. Him. It did. It was Khalil Mack. Malcolm Coons is not Khalil Mack by any stretch, but I think Malcolm I Coons will be a solid piece in that defense. And the final guy I want to talk about is another safety in the fourth round. They took Tyree Gillespie out of the Mizzou. He's extremely talented. He's more of a free safety. He likes to play deep and roam the field. And he is he is a good player. I thought he was going to go round three or even two. And they got him round four. So so I think... I don't know. I, I agree. I, I loved their later picks. It seems like their later picks were kind of the opposite of their earlier earliest pick, where they went against what everybody was thinking early. And in the later rounds, they were looking for top guys that slipped. I agree. That's I kind just... of the impression that I get from them. I just think that Alex Leatherwood is going to have to be better than every tackle taken beneath him for this draft pick to be considered. Like, Like, yeah, yeah, I guess. But he doesn't actually, he doesn't have to be better than every tackle beneath him for the Raiders to be a good football team. And that's the goal. The goal isn't to win the NFL draft. The goal is to win the Super Bowl. And you do that by having the best football team. Maybe they could have gotten better value with one of the guys that they would have taken Alex Leatherwood. And also, there's a very good chance they would. Because that happens with 99% of the guys taken in the NFL draft. Someone better will be taken after them. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm a bit weird, but I don't fault them as much for other people do for marching to the beat of their own drum and taking the guy that they felt was the best in this situation. I just know from the draft process studying Tevin Jenkins, I think that he was worthy of this pick, and yeah. they went with Leatherwood instead, who was more, much more of a raw talent. And, yeah. you know, Leatherwood could pan out to be really good, and that's true. But I think that Tevin Jenkins could pan out to be better. He finishes his blocks with more authority. He's meaner on the offensive line. And I think he's more talented than Alex Leatherwood is and will be at the NFL level. So I think when you look at the guys at the tackle position that they could have had, you're right. It's not about winning the NFL draft. It's about winning the Super Bowl. But I think that by winning the NFL draft with guys like Tevin Jenkins or other tackle prospects that could have gone before him, I think that that maybe gives them a better shot to win the Super Bowl. I don't know. I don't necessarily fault them for marching at the beat of their own drum either, but I've seen they've done it consistently for years now, and it has not really worked out to this point. Exactly. This is the last draw for a lot of people, and myself included. If this doesn't work out, I think the front office... And the coaching, I think Gruden could be out of there at some point very soon. I agree. If the Raiders continue to struggle. But I still think my impression of this pick, and I, I feel like I'm this way for most picks, there's a lot of football to be played. You know, I, everybody loves getting their impressions of players and doing all the draft analysis. And we're the biggest guys who do that because it's a lot of fun. It is fun. However, there there's a lot of hate that's going at the Las Vegas Raiders for selecting Alex Weatherwood. And I really don't think they deserve it. Maybe if if two years from now Alex Sutherland ends up being a gigantic bust and the Raiders are a laughing stock, I'll admit it. I'll be wrong. But I just I need to see him play. All right. Well, that wraps up our draft recap. Um those were the six teams yeah. we decided that we really want to talk about. We Hold went on. in depth about well, it. We spent a lot of time on it. Yes. Um so now we're gonna transition into our next segment, which is the NBA playoffs. It's playoff time. It's One madness. Second, Before we do that, there's some huge football news that happened today that I would be remiss if we didn't 
even just gloss over. Go ahead. Julio Jones oh, yeah. was called by Shannon Sharp on today's episode of Undisputed and said that he wants out of Atlanta. And it also came out that he requested a trade months ago and they've been looking for calls. And then my favorite part of the whole situation, Shannon Sharp says, Yo, Julio, do you want to go to Dallas? Julio Jones said, he said, nah, I want to win. <laughs> yeah. Now, as as NFC East fans, I would hate I Julio Jones, Jones to go to Dallas, bro. If you went to Dallas, that'd be game over. That'd be game over. Oh, they would run four receivers every, every snap. I would too, bro. Jesus. If you've got Julio Jones, Amari Cooper, Michael. Yeah, well, he's not going to Lamb. Dallas. He said he doesn't want to go there. He's not going, he's to, not Dallas. going to Dallas, bro. If he goes anywhere, Fuck it's going to be like New England. He could go to Tennessee. I've seen that one. I don't want the Chargers. to go to Tennessee. The Chargers is the, the, Bills. the two teams that I think would be the most fun to see him in is the Los Angeles Chargers and Agreed. the Baltimore Ravens. I don't love the Ravens just because I feel like he's a little bit of an odd fit there. But I would love to see I would love to see him in Buffalo. Him in Buffalo would be cool with Stephon Diggs. You can't cover Stephon Diggs and Julio Jones. You cannot. All right. Well, let's not spend too much time on this because this is all just some speculation. We'll jump into the NBA now. I just felt like we had to mention that. All right. So the playoffs have begun. Um, I haven't got a chance to watch a lot of the playoffs. I've been working a lot. I've been working a lot of night shifts the past two nights. So I haven't been able to watch every second of every game. I did get to watch every second of the Sixers game, which was terrifying. I think we should start with the Western Conference because I think that's, you know, probably slightly more interesting than the Eastern Conference, at least in my opinion, when it comes to the playoffs. So we have uh, the number one seeded Jazz versus the eight seeded Grizzlies. So Danny, who do you have and how many games? Oh, First of all, I need to say, today it was just confirmed while we were recording this that Donovan Mitchell is playing game two Thank God. for the Jazz. Thank God. So, with that in mind, the Grizzlies won the first game. Jazz in six. No, no. Fuck it. Jazz in five. All right. I'm not worried. Okay. I was- this Jazz team is very good. They've, they lost their killer, and they succeeded without him through the end of the regular season. They lost their playoff game because they didn't have him. And he was mad that they wouldn't let him play games. Yeah, he was He pissed. wants to play badly. He was pissed. I expect him to go off, and even if he doesn't go off, they have Rudy Gobert. They have some of the most efficient scorers in the league, and Joe Ingles and Mike Conley. Jordan Clarkson is an amazing He's scorer. He's six-man. Jordan Clarkson is six-man, like no question at this point. I don't know. Say what you want. You can say I'm a John Morant hater. John Morant is a very good player. He went off during the play-in, and he played really well during game one, too. I just don't think they have enough to beat the Jazz. I agree. Although, we do have to mention Dylan Brooks in game Dylan one. Dylan Brooks did play well. He put up, what was it, 31-32? He went crazy. I have Jazz in six. I think once Donovan Mitchell hits the lineup again, I think that he's going to yeah. be a difference maker Jazz for that team. And, you know, people are talking about how the Jazz aren't, this overpowered team, but I think they're well built. So I th- I have Jazz and Six. No questions. Yeah. I don't love them to make a deep playoff run, but I do Jazz and Five. I'm sorry. I don't think they lose to the Grizzlies. I don't think and the Grizzlies are a good team. They don't lose to the Grizzlies. I just, yeah. Donovan Mitchell's coming back. I think he's going to go crazy. Next, we have the Clippers and the Mavs. Danny, who do you have? This is a bit of a tricky one because we saw this series last year and the Mavs won this one with Luka Doncic going crazy. And the Mavs just won game one of this series. However, I'm going to stick with my gut and the way I was feeling beforehand. I think this Clippers team is better than the team last year. So I have them winning the game 
and them winning the series. Originally, I would have said six, but after seeing what happened in game one, I'll go Clippers in seven. There's no... I Kawhi Leonard's amazing, and I don't think Paul George can continue to be this garbage this often, if that makes sense. So... If he does terribly and they lose this again, he will go down as one of the biggest chokers in NBA history. Fact. Regardless of what he did in Indiana earlier in his career beating my Knicks, he will be a monumental choker. Pandemic P, way off P, like he's, he needs to step up. So this one was a really hard one for me to decide, but I've actually decided to go with Mavs in seven. I think it's a hard series for both teams to win because there's star power on both sides. Um, the Mavs have a two to one uh, season series lead in the regular season, thanks to the efforts from Luka Doncic. And the Clippers have struggled to defend him all season. He aver- Luka averaged thirty point three points per game when they've played the season, with the high score of forty two in one game. He's been putting up triple doubles against them for basically as long as he's breathed. Um, and unless the Clippers can find a way to slow Luka down, I think he'll the Mavs will take down the Clippers. I originally thought that, you know, the star power of the Clippers might be able to get it done, but they just haven't found an answer for Luka Doncic yet. And I thought it was going to be Kawhi, and Luka's continued to run all over this team. I think Luka by himself wins two games. And with the efforts from his teammates, I think they can win one more with his supporting cast. And I think when it comes down to, you know, a Game 7, it was tough because I know this is going to be in LA and I know it's going to be the Clippers on their home home court, which made it really tough for me to, you know, give it to the Mavs. But I think Luca goes off. So I'm going to have Mavs in seven. Okay. A couple more things I wanted to mention. This is obviously for the Mavs. Their win condition is Luka Doncic and Luka Doncic alone. Kristaps Porzingis is soft and he has played terribly. He's not, I wouldn't consider him to be a star player anymore. And that's coming from someone who used to think he was amazing when he was a Nick. Obviously, we traded him, and I hate the guy now, so I'm probably a little biased. But he's performed terribly. He was very bad in Game 1. He was bad the few times he was healthy in the regular season. However, Tim Hardaway Jr. is a very good player, and I feel like he's extremely slept on on that roster. And if he continues to make his shots, that'll be gigantic for them. I agree. But the biggest determining factor of this whole series is how much effort the Clippers put in on defense. Because Kawhi is an extremely talented defender. Paul George is an extremely talented defender. They have they have Pat Bev on that team. Like, why why can't you play defense, what? Clippers? I don't understand why they haven't been able to stop Luka yet. Because I think they have at least two really good defenders that can stop him. And Pat Bev is another good defender on that team. But overall, they just have not been able to do it. And I, I can't figure out why. Now, let me let me just read something for you. Would you consider someone who is whose plus minus is 16 plus 16 um shooting 5 for 9 from 3 and 8 from 13 uh, 8 of 13 from the field and 32 minutes scoring 21 points, would you consider that a difference maker? Yeah. That was Tim Hardaway Jr. He's amazing. He's a re- he's, so he's amazing. I'll say I'll say my take. He's the second best player in the Mavericks. He's playing like it right now. He is. Because Kristaps Porzingis, although he had a plus 13, scored 14 points on 13 shots. Extremely inefficient. And not to mention, he's a big man. He is 7 feet 3 inches tall. And I'm sure that I could bully him in the post. He is soft. And it pisses me off. I hate players that play like him. I hate him. 
I hate Larry Marketing. I hate Anthony Davis. Guys that are very big, but play like they're small. It bothers me. All right. Moving on to the next series we've got, we've got Denver and we've got the Blazers. Who do you have, Danny? I, I've seen your prediction, and I strongly disagree with you. I have the Denver Nuggets in six games. The Trailblazers won game one. Damian Lillard is an amazing first-round playoff guy, don't get me wrong. However, Nikola Jokic is the MVP, but he's not the reason they win. He's not. He'll be the best player on the team, but he's not going to be able to tip the scale either way because he is the main piece of that team and everyone knows about Jokic. Michael Porter Jr., since the absence of of Jamal Murray, I believe he's been averaging 25-26 a game extremely efficiently. Michael Porter Jr. is becoming a star. He's an amazing player, and he has not yet gotten the recognition he deserves. He is one of the most talented scorers in the league, and I think within a few years he'll be competing for the scoring title. That's how good I think he is, and I think him and Jokic and the synergy the two of them have, as well as other guys on the team, like Compazzo has stepped up a bit. They have Aaron Gordon. I, I, I'm sorry. Just defensively, the Trailblazers aren't very good. And if Jamal Murray was there, I would have thought it would have been Nuggets in four. I'm sorry. Because their guards, the thing that makes the Blazers good is Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum and their offense. However, their defense is garbage. They can't guard anybody. Do you think Nurkic or Ennis Cantor is going to be able to stop Jokic? No, they, they won't be able to. Even their guards, Lillard and McCollum, as amazing as they are, they're very subpar defensively. McCollum's a shooting guard. He's only six feet tall. Like, he's not going to be able to guard a lot of players. Even their forwards, like, outside of Covington, who's a solid defensive player. Like, I love Carmelo Anthony. The dude cannot play defense, especially at this stage in his career. I just don't see how they stop these Nuggets. So, they the Nuggets were amazing through the second half of the season. And even though the Blazers pretty handily won game one, I still have the Nuggets in, I'll say, six. So, I know Danny has seen my prediction, but... I'm also, I believe he's made a very good case for why Denver should win in six, so I'm going with him and I'm saying Denver should win in six. I thought, thinking about it, thinking about it more, you're right. I don't see a lot of defensive matchups where the Blazers excel here. I don't see them slowing down efficient scores. I don't think Jokic is good enough to win this series by himself, and I think Danny makes a really good point about Michael Porter Jr., I really like where Michael Porter Jr. is going, and I really like the way that he's played at the tail end of the season. And I agree with Danny. I think him by himself can probably carry a game, and I think Jokic can probably win two games for the Nuggets in the the series themselves. Plus a supporting cast, which is strong around Denver. I can see Denver winning all four games in the series. I think that they probably win in six or seven. I don't think it's going to be a turnaround where it's Denver and five after losing the first game like that. But I can very easily understand Denver in six or seven. Yeah. So another, go ahead. I want to go in depth on all of the matchups because Denver is obviously very banged up. Murray and Barden are both out. So their guards are Composo and Rivers. And obviously, Dame and CJ are going to do some work and try to eat those guys alive. But. The Blazers' starting lineup in Game 1 was Lillard, McCollum, Norm Powell was at the 3, and he's a guard. He's not big. Their 4 was Covington, and they had Nurkic at the 5. The Nuggets started Porter, 
They started Aaron Gordon, and they started Jokic. So their three, their small forward was Michael Porter Jr., who is six foot ten, six foot eleven. How tall is Norm Powell? I, I'm gonna Google it right now because he is not that tall. Also, Google how tall Michael Porter is because Norm he... Powell is six foot four. He is six to seven inches shorter than Michael Porter Jr. So regardless, if they put Covington on MPJ, which they should definitely do, Aaron Gordon's gonna eat. I, and, like, what forwards do they have off the bench? Melo is not going to be able to stop them. You're right. Michael Porter Jr. They have no forwards. Like, they, the only forward they played off the bench was Melo. They have two playable forwards on that roster, Melo and Covington. I love Covington defensively. I really do. Me too. He, he's good. He was a, he's a really great defender in Philadelphia. He was a really great defender in Houston when they needed him, when they had... Harden and Westbrook or Harden and Chris Paul. And I think defensively, he could probably do work on... He's a better matchup for Michael Porter Jr. But, I mean, I don't think Aaron Gordon's a difference maker on the offensive side of the ball. I never have. I never... I think he I, is. I don't him, see him being... Him, the thing that makes him and Porter so good to me on this Nuggets team is their ability as cutters. There are big players that cut to the hoop well, and they're playing with the best playmaking big man in the history of basketball, and Nikola Jokic. I think this team synergizes incredibly well, and the injuries haven't even stifled them. I think they run on like a 26-5 and five run at the end of the year. I could be wrong with that, but they were incredible. And I... I think this team is very good. Regardless, I think that they can win this in six or seven games. Yeah. So now on to the last one in the Western Conference in the first round, which is Suns and Lakers. Danny, what do you think? Oh, oh, this, is, this is a tough one. This game, all right, I have the Phoenix Suns winning in seven. All right. I just, I think this is the Chris Paul time where he's finally able to have some playoff success. He's due for it. Not to mention, Devin Booker has shown throughout his career. He hasn't played in many big games, but every big game he's played in, he's been a killer. Remember the bubble? Yeah. 8-0 in the bubble. He went stupid. He went stupid in game one when they won it. Aiton has been really good. And also, the Lakers, matchup-wise, I don't I don't love that. I don't either. Because they're going to, if they continue to play Andre Drummond, like... He's just going to keep getting bullied in the pick-and-roll game with Chris Paul and Booker and with Aiton as the pick. Drummond is a very bad defensive center, and he puts up numbers with points and rebounds, don't get me wrong, but he's just a bad basketball player, plain and simple. Anthony Davis, if he plays up to his potential, the Lakers should win this series. Anthony Davis has the potential to be the best player in the NBA. He truly does. With all of his intangibles, his body, the things he's able to do on the court, he just doesn't have the mindset for it. He doesn't like going to the hoop. He doesn't like playing like a big man. He likes taking elbow jumpers, and he likes playing on the outside, even though he's seven feet tall. He's playing against DeAndre Ayton, who has never played a big basketball game in his life, really. Anthony Davis should be bullying him, but that's just not how it happened in game one. Anthony Davis had 13 points. It's not good. I, I'm sorry. Like I think, I think he's kind of a fraud, and that while LeBron is potentially the greatest player of all time, I don't know if he can do it with all these injuries. It would take some LeBron crazy shit to do it because they barely beat the they Warriors. Who they scraped the out against the Warriors who did lose to the Grizzlies with a LeBron last second shot. Look, there is a reason why they're the seventh seed. Pete, I, it's crazy to me that it's a bold prediction to say Suns and Six, which is what I have. I have Suns and Six. And I think it's crazy to me that that has to be something that I need to defend 
the Suns had the second highest field goal percentage, the seventh highest three-point percentage, the second highest free throw percentage, third most assists, and fourth fewest turnovers. Offensively, the Suns are one of the best in the league, and I don't see the Lakers stopping that. I really don't. D-Book and Aiden outplayed uh, LeBron and AD in this first game. They did. Chris Paul is going to be... D-Book had more than LeBron and AD. Correct. Combined. And it's crazy to me that people are like, oh, the Lakers are a championship team. Oh, the Lakers can do this because they have LeBron. It's LeBron. I get it. He's probably the greatest player of all time. You can make an argument for it. But I don't see him beating this Suns team. It's just not the same to me anymore. I think the... I think... I'm not afraid of the Lakers. I am not. I haven't been, and I won't be. Their supporting cast has played like Dookie this year. Really. Like, LeBron had to sit out a game where he was healthy, where the Lakers played the Houston Rockets, so that the bench players on the Lakers could come in and beat the starters on the Houston Rockets. Because they needed the confidence. If you were playing so badly that you need confidence against one of the worst teams in the NBA, you're a fraud already. I I do not see the Suns losing the series to the Lakers. I get it. LeBron is great. That's why I'm giving him two games, maybe three. I can see this happening in seven. But really, I think the Suns win this in six. And, you know, LeBron loses his first ever first-round playoff matchup. He's 14-0 in playoff matchups in the first round. I think this is the one where he loses. Yeah. On to the Eastern Conference, we have the Sixers and the Wizards. And if Joel Embiid does not eat and the Sixers do not win this in five, I will be disappointed. I think there is no center on that team that can stop Joel Embiid. He got into foul trouble his in the first game of the series, which is why that they were, you know, it was a tight game. But at the end of the game, he ran away with it like the MVP candidate he is and should perform to. So I'm giving Westbrook and Beal a game in this series because I think that they're good enough to do it. The Sixers played really great defensively on them in this game. But whenever I was watching, I felt like they were knocking down open threes or they were playing at playing the Wizards brand of basketball, which is fast, a fast-paced, fast-break offense. And I think if the Sixers can take control of how the games are played, take control of the pace, play their style of basketball, they can get it done in five. Easy. They they led the season series. They were undefeated against the Wizards in the regular season. Embiid eight in those games. Ben needs to improve at the free throw line, no question. Going over six from the line is unacceptable. It is for a max contract player. Scoring six points is not okay. I get it. He had fifteen rebounds and he had fifteen assists. He created instead of scoring, which is important. But he has to be able to score too. If they want to make a late playoff push, he's got to be able to do it. So hopefully he figures that out in the rest of this series and he performs better. Um, I still have Sixers and five. I'm going to take it a step further. I have Sixers and four. Now, I love Russell Westbrook. I'm a huge Russell Westbrook guy. And I think Bradley Beal is amazing too. That's it. That's the Washington Wizards. Rui Hashimura is a solid player. Who are they relying on outside of those guys? Ish Smith? Davis Bertans? Like, Embiid should have 40 and 20 every game, legitimately. Their centers are Alex Len and Robin Lopez. They should not be able to do anything. And I think the Sixers match up fantastically. They have Ben Simmons, 
deploy candidate, self-proclaimed defensive player of the year, Ben Simmons. So that means either Beal or Westbrook should be shut down. Not to mention they have other really good defenders on that roster, such as Danny Green. Danny Green's a lockdown defender. You can put him on the other one. You have Tobias Harris there, who went crazy game one. I don't know. The Sixers, the Sixers to me, played a bad game game one, and they still won. They should win in four. That's my logic. If they don't win in four, I think they could be I think they win in five because I see Westbrook and Beal getting one game off of them in Washington. I do. I think it's one game. And I think it'll probably when it's 2-0 and the Sixers are up and then they steal a game and then Philadelphia finds their footing again in the lost, get, go up 3-1, finish it out in Philadelphia. I think it's pretty simple. So I don't... Yeah. I mean, I can could, I could see them losing games. Don't get me wrong. I just think it's most likely that they just win it in four. I don't think they should lose a game. On paper, they should right. blow them out. Danny, I'm going to let you go ahead with this next one because I have Nixon seven against the Hawks, but I want to let you talk about um, hold on, hold on, hold on. I think we save this for the end because I have, I could go on for a right, while. We'll, we'll come back. We'll come back to this matchup <laughs> in the end. We'll move on to Bucks versus Heat for now. Um, Danny, who do you have? I have. This is the one that I've really been on the fence about. I like. I've been leaning Heat, and then I'll lean Bucks. The Bucks won Game One on that big Chris Middleton shot. Ultimately, I think I'm going Bucks in seven. Now, the Heat, don't get me wrong, the Heat are a very good team, and I'm very glad the Knicks don't have to play them. But people are going to write these Bucks off just like they're the Bucks of last year and the Bucks of the year before. That is simply not true. They have Drew Holiday now. Drew Holiday is probably the most underrated player in basketball. If you watch the game, you saw, of course, you saw that Chris Middleton shot, but to be the biggest play of the game, was Drew Holiday getting out in transition and hitting that tough layup with two guys chasing him down. I don't remember whether it was in the fourth or overtime specifically, but that play gave all the momentum to Milwaukee. And Jimmy Butler was able to do great things because he's Jimmy Butler. Bam Adebayo is amazing defensively. They're a very good team. However, I think the big three, yeah, I'm going to call them a big three. Giannis, Middleton, Drew Holiday. I just like them better than I like Miami. Um... I think that so Jimmy and Bam went a combined eight for thirty-seven in this first game, and they were still in it until the very last second when Middleton iced them in OT. I think if Jimmy and Bam can figure out their offensive woes and the shooters continue to shoot knockdown threes, like you know Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero, and if Goran Dragic, Tyler Hero has like, been bad. Dragic Tyler has, Hero, you should probably include in their woes. He shot two for ten game one. He struggled badly throughout the regular season, too. He's not the same Tyler Hero he was in last year's playoffs. But if he can find his footing and he can start hitting threes more consistently, I think he's got a lot going for him. I get that he's a huge threat, and I get that Drew Holiday can lock down guys because he's one of the best defenders in the league. But I think if the. But Giannis may or may not have issues with an elbow injury. He was wearing a sleeve, and he was holding his elbow at the end of the game, so he could have a potential injury, so he might not be at his greatest. And if Giannis is not at his greatest in this series, I think the Heat sneak it out in seven. I could definitely see that happening, and another point I want to make is that the Heat are very well equipped to handle the Bucks defensively. If you just look matchup to matchup, who would you rather have defend Giannis in the whole league than Bam? No one. I think Bam is the one. Who would you rather have defend Chris Middleton than Jimmy Butler? I very few guys. I agree. 
They do and match Go- up. Another guy I want to mention of the Heat, Goran Dragic. He's going to come off the bench. He's going to play a lot of minutes at the point. He's so slept on. He could average 20 a game this series very well. He plays quietly. Yeah, he put up 25 his first game. Yes, he did. So I, I don't know. This I'm not. I don't have a strong opinion on this series either way. This is kind of one of those series where I'm just gonna sit back and enjoy some very good basketball, because you know we'll see how it goes. It's tough. Yeah. So yeah. the next one is Nets versus Celtics. God, I hate the Nets, but their big three are healthy, rested, and ready to tear apart the Eastern Conference. This is Nets in four. Um, and as much as I hate to say it, the Nets load managing their players all season to get to this point to be well rested for the off season. You should put your stars out every night and they should be playing whether if they're healthy so that they can, you know, fans can pay for what they're getting to see. So they should they should yeah. fans should get to see their big three since they have them and they should be on the court Wait, and they should you said, you said fans? Hypothetical fans. We're talking we're talking about the Brooklyn Nets scabbing. Hypothetical fans, <laughs> right? Their fans live across the country. Regardless, yeah. I I'm, yeah. I'm this series. I'm not a huge Nets. So, I am not a Nets supporter. I don't like what the Nets have done. I think it's sneaky. I think it's cheap, and I think the NBA should look into changing load management rules so that everybody is equally tired when we hit the off season. So that you know, a team like the Nets isn't ready and stacked to tear apart the rest of the Eastern Conference to make it to the you know championship right away. Yeah. So I'm going to start this off. The Nets' big three, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden, they took eight three-pointers each between the three of them. So that's 24 total. They hit five. That's like, what, 21 22% shooting from three? From three of the best. It's not even an exaggeration to say those are three of the best scorers in NBA history. It's not. Durant and Harden are top five, and Kyrie is up there too. This is an extremely talented team, and they still won that game by 11. I, like... You said Nets in four? Like, yeah, probably. However, I still have a little bit of hope inside of me that Jason Tatum can have another ridiculous game and carry them. I don't know how likely it is. I do see more heart in Jason Tatum than any of the Nets, if that makes sense. I know. That's probably just me saying shit that I want to say, but (laughs) I don't know. Like, it's going to be the Nets. It's just a question of whether or not Tatum's able to have him take one away. And I mean... Honestly, I don't think he will. He could. It could be Nets in five, but I, I don't think so. So now we'll get into the I'm, – I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you run with this. Um, oh, boy. Okay. okay, so I'm going to start this off on a happy note because I'm going to get angry. Today, while we were recording, I saw this. For the first time ever, Tom Thibodeau did not commit to Alfred Payton. Nice. He had always been saying – he had always said stuff like, Peyton, I don't know. He does things to this team. Oh, he keeps playing. Tom Thibodeau did not commit. And my biggest thing that has made me more mad than anything else about these New York Knicks, if you trust Frank Milikina enough to put him in on the most important possession of the basketball game, then why is that the only possession he plays? What sense does that make? If you're saying, this guy, we need one guy to stop Trey Young, we're going to put him in one play a game. Why not play him 30 minutes? Why not play him 20? Why not play him 10? Why not play him 2? He plays one minute a game. It's so infuriating. It's terrible. It sucks. So if Frank Nilekin is able to get consistent minutes, because Trey Young hit that very nice game winner on him, I'm not going to lie. Fuck Trey Young. He's a bitch. He had zero free throws the first three quarters. He had nine in the fourth quarter. Bullshit. He knows, like, 
he didn't trust himself to score down the stretch, so he tried to draw fouls. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to knock him for it. Like, I still think he's a bitch, but that's more on the NBA than it is on him. That game winner was nice, and he got by Frank Nilakina. That does not happen if Frank Nilakina gets to play then more than three minutes of basketball a week. Frank Nilakina, without exaggeration, is one of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA. That's how I feel about him. That's how much faith I have in that man. I love him so much. Why does he play one play a game? It makes no sense. If he's able to get his minutes, I promise you Trey Young won't be as good. I promise. And guess what? Frank will be in foul trouble because Trey will keep driving at him. I'm not mad at Frank. Frank could foul out in the second quarter. I wouldn't give a fuck. I want that man on the court. Another realization that I came to regarding this series. Everybody knows I hate Alfred Payton. Everybody knows that I do not like him. However, if one of the times when he's on the court, he punches Trey Young in the face, that one action will make him a Knicks fan favorite for life. Probably. Through one game of this series, Knicks fans hate Trey Young that much. Alfred Payton, if I'm him, I'm flipping the script and entirely changing my legacy as a basketball player. Because his legacy right now is being the bum that every Knicks fan hates. I would much rather be the guy that punched Trey Young in the mouth than the bum that every Knicks fan hates. I agree. I, I think Alec Burks went fucking nuts yesterday. All right? I'm not worried about this series as a Knicks fan. I'm truly not. Game one, it hurt. I watched it at my friend's house. I drove home. A single tear rolled down my cheek. I'm not going to so lie. Sad. I took a picture of it. I thought it was really funny that that happened. I was sad. I still am sad. It was a rough game. But Nerlens Noel got hurt down the stretch, and he only played 24 minutes. So that combined with Julius Randle, our star player, shooting 6 for 23, having the one of the worst games of his whole season. Those two things happened. Fucked the Knicks over. Of course, Alfred Payton still played. We only played like eight minutes. Like It wasn't his fault we lost, but like, come on. You know, all these things are bad. Reggie Bullock, one of the best shooters in the NBA. He shot over five from three. Yet, he hits one three and we win that game. One out of five. Julius Randle hits one more shot. We win that game. There once in a while, plays down the stretch. We win that game. I am not worried. To me, it seems like so many things have to go wrong for the Knicks to lose this series, given we are the New York Knicks and it's probably going to happen. But I still think we're the better basketball team. I, I truly I agree. Because that Trey Young floater to win the game, that doesn't happen if, one, we have a Frank Nilakina who gets to play more than one play of basketball game. Because imagine you're sitting on a bench for hours and it's like, all right, come on, get the biggest stop of the game. Like, that's so stupid. And second of all, Nerlens Noel, top three interior defender in the NBA, averages more than two blocks a game, averages more than one steal a game, only player in the NBA to do that this year. If he's healthy at the end of the game and he's in there and not Taj Gibson, there's no way Trey Young even gets that floater off. Maybe he finds a nice pass to Clint Capello underneath and they win that way. Okay, I would rather lose to Clint Capello than to Trey Young. We need Nerlens Noel healthy. So, with this in mind, I have the Knicks in six. I have Knicks in seven, mainly because Julius and RJ combined for 12 of 38. Alec Burks and D. Rose off the bench kept them in this game until the very, very end. And I think if they can keep up production, maybe not Alex Burks to that level, but if D. Rose and Alec Burks continue to keep up production at a high level and Julius and RJ find their footing, plus putting Frank in for more minutes so that he can slow down and trade offensively, I think the Knicks are a better team, and I think this they get this done in Game 7 in the Garden. And a couple more things I want to say. One, Frank Nilakita, not only is he great defensively, he's significantly better offensively than Alfred Payton. 
Alfred Payton, I believe he took four shots yesterday and missed them all. Obviously, who saw that coming? Not every single person watching the game. But Frank Milikina, I, he's shooting like 48% from three this year. And he still doesn't play. He's one of the best perimeter defenders in the league, and he's shooting 48% from three. He doesn't play. It's not even only him. Emmanuel quickly last night, if you watched the game, he went fucking stupid. He is so good, yet he still doesn't play enough. We have so much guard talent on this team, yet we cripple ourselves at the beginning of every first and third quarter because we feel the need to have Alfred Payton in the game. Just don't put him in. It's ridiculous. Simple. Exactly. And so now I have hope because Tibbs, for the first time ever, just said we're going to play the best player. And that is not something he has ever said before. Who knows who that's going to so, be? I, I hope that it's, you know, it's not going to be Alfred Payton. Payton. Maybe it's, it's be... D-Rose, maybe it's Frank. We'll see. We'll see. My guess is they're going to keep the normal starting four outside of Alfred, and then the point guard, It'll either, I don't think it'll be D-Rose, although he's the best point guard in the team, obviously. He'll probably be coming off the bench. It could be Burks at the one in the starting lineup. I don't think so. If I had to take a guess, I would bet on Emmanuel quickly starting. It's not a bad choice. Because I don't think Tibbs is going to jump from Frank being on the bench the whole game to being a starter. Although, I think the Knicks should do everything they can to match Frank's minutes with Trey's minutes. But I don't think they will. I think it's quickly, most likely. But anything can happen. Because those are four point guards better than Alfred Payton. I agree. Any of them can play. All right, that wraps up our NBA section, which means we're going to get into our two new sections of the episode and of our podcast. And we're going to start off with, do you want to start off or do you want me to start off? I'll do it. All right. I'll start it off. Go ahead. This is Danny's Notes app. All right. We call this Danny's Notes app. This kind of started where we haven't recorded for like a month. So we've had a lot of time and I think about sports a lot. And there's always thoughts I have that I'm like, man, I wish I could remember this for the podcast. So you know what? I took the initiative and I decided that I wanted to create this notes app in my phone where I just write all down all my stupid thoughts I have. And I'm just going to read off some of the interesting ones I have. And a lot of them are kind of funny. So I'm going to save some of them for the future because I don't know how often I'll have these thoughts. One of them we already kind of discussed was... The Texans taking Davis Mills as the quarterback, although that I wrote down a while ago before the Watson stuff kind of really picked up. First thing I want to say, you know how Subway has like always endorsed athletes? Yeah. You know, whether it's Michael Phelps and Justin Tuck back then. Currently, they have promos going on for Jason Tatum and for Draymond Green, I believe. Yeah. I only know this because I went to a Subway once and I ordered my food and the guy was new with a cash register. So it's manager. He's like, how do I ring this up? And the guy goes, oh, it's the Tatum. And I'm like, what? I got, I'm like, what are you talking about? I got turkey and bacon. And, he, and the guy's like, oh, the basketball player, Tatum. And I was like, Jason Tatum? So then I realized that. And then that was the day after Julius Randle went off for like 40. And I was like, you know what? Why does Jason Tatum get a sandwich and not Julius Randle? And then I took that thought one step further. They need to call it the Randwich. Oh, my God. Get me right? a Randwich. Get what's on a Randwich. Pickles. Pickles for sure. I don't know. Honestly, ask Julius' son, Kaiden Randall. Kid's adorable. I love him. Ask him what, what he likes on a sandwich and just make that the Randwich. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. And we already have kind of a long episode here, so I'm not going to talk about too much of the stuff I have. But I will talk about a crazy butterfly effect that I think is going to affect the NFL world for years to come. And that is Nate Sudfeld coming in that game. Oh, my God. 
Okay, just think about it. Yeah, I'm just going to... This could go a million different ways, but all right. Think about this one. So if Nate Sunfeld does not come in that game and the Philadelphia Eagles manage to win, the New York Giants are in the playoffs. That means the New York Giants no longer have the 11th pick in the NFL draft. That pick goes to the Washington football team. Now, do the Washington football team trade with the Chicago Bears so the Bears get Justin Fields? Absolutely not. There is no chance unless they try to trade up to 10 which i don't think they do or trade up before the bears most likely do not get justin fields if the eagles don't put nate sunfeld in that game you're welcome and if justin fields ends up being the elite quarterback that many people expect him to be this will tear up the nfl landscape for years to come and there's also a million different ways you could take this butterfly effect because that game in week 17 was so immensely consequential that Nate Sudfeld coming in for no fucking reason, by the way, has dramatic effects on the NFL and will for the future. I mean, I guess I guess my takeaway from this is you're welcome, Bears fans. You got your quarterback of the future because of the Eagles. I, you're welcome. I think that, you know, if, the, if Washington has the 11th pick, then they probably do take quarterback, which means Fitzpatrick probably doesn't go to Washington, which means Fitzpatrick goes somewhere else. Um, Washington doesn't get Jamin Davis. Think about how good Washington will be in the future if they have Justin Fields, because that's a nearly full team right now. No, I guess Washington. Like, Jamin Davis is good. Don't get me wrong. I like him as a first-round pick, but he will not have the impact that Justin Fields would have had there. I'm not going to disagree. Who knows? That that is a cool butterfly effect, but it also doesn't fucking matter because it didn't happen. I mean, like, yeah, but, like, you know what? No, no. Hold on. What? What do you mean it doesn't fucking matter? What's the point of analyzing draft prospects? What's the point of predicting outcomes of the NBA? We're in this for the fun of it, all right? This is a fun thing to talk about. Fuck off with that. It doesn't matter. You're just saying that because you're wearing an Eagles shirt right now, all right? I am currently Your franchise is a laughing stock, and because of it, the Bears got a quarterback. Welcome, Bears fans. <laughs> I mean, you're welcome. Right. I got, I got do, my. Do you want me to? Whatever. Do you want me to hit one more of these, or should we move on? Let's move on. I'm gonna read my tweet of the week. Keep this short, and then we'll wrap up our episode here. So I already, I already touched on it earlier. Ben Simmons going 0 for six from the free throw line. So this was this morning actually at 1:26 a.m. I tweeted Ben Simmons was 0 for six at the free throw line today. So after work, I grabbed my basketball from my car and went to my local court and went three from three for six from the free throw line just to prove to myself I was better. If I can outshoot Ben Simmons at the free throw line after getting off of a busy shift at a restaurant where I'm delivery driving all over the island, also running food out, doing a whole bunch of shit, then you know what? That's bad. That That is... That proves that Ben Simmons is a sorry shooter. He can do other things, but there is an argument to be made that maybe you shouldn't be a max contract player without being able to shoot. That's a debate that I had with my father this morning. Regardless, I went three for six from the line. Ben Simmons, if you'd like to have a free throw shooting contest, I endorse that. Um, iForm Sports supports it. We will live stream it, and you know what? You'll probably win because I'm kind of booty cheeks when it comes to shooting the basket uh, from the free throw line. Yeah, you, yeah, you still outshot. Yeah, I still outshot you, bozo. All right. Well, 
that concludes our first distanced episode. We don't have an unsportsmanlike conduct feed today. We decided to fill that gap with our two new segments that we're going to do every once in a while. But that's it. That's all we got. Uh, Danny, any final additions you'd like to put out there? Let's go Knicks. Knicks in four. They can't win in four. Bozo. I was talking about the, I was talking about the finals, you idiot. Sure, believe what you want. All right. That is all. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.